Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. The Lord was pleased to strengthen us and remove all fear from us and disposed our hearts to be as useful as possible. This quote is from Bishop Richard Allen. His dates are February 14, 1760 to March 26, 1831, and he's the founder of the American Methodist Episcopal Church, and he recorded this in his narrative of the proceedings of the black people during the late awful calamity in Philadelphia in the year 1793. Joining me for this special edition of This Week in Church History, where we're focusing on Black History Month, is Dr. Paul Thompson. Dr. Thompson is the Dean of the College of Humanities and Sciences and Professor of History at North Greenville University. Dr. Thompson received his doctorate in American History from Emory University and a Certificate in Nonprofit Management from Duke University. Prior to teaching at North Greenville, Dr. Thompson had a 13-year career as a public high school teacher and taught history at Lander University. His teaching and research interests include the 19th century temperance movement, African-American history, and the history of Christianity in America. He is also the 2015 NGU recipient of Excellence in Teaching Award given by the South Carolina Independent Colleges and University. He's the author of A Most Stirring and Significant Episode, Religion and the Rise and Fall of Prohibition in Black Atlanta, 1865 to 1887. And he also has authored a lot of different articles in various encyclopedias. Dr. Thompson, we are so glad that you are joining us here on this episode of This Week in Church History. Thank you for that introduction. I'm so glad to be here with you. Well, on your, in, on your bio, as, as we were kind of looking ahead of time, uh, it did mention that uh, you consider yourself somewhat of a foodie, but you're out in Carolina, so we definitely need to get you to Kansas City uh, to come experience barbecue. Sounds like a great idea. Um, I'm happy to eat it anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's the right attitude, right? Uh, it's, that's what yeah, we have oh, to do. Stuff. That's fantastic. Well, I'm super excited to be able to talk with you uh, about a person who, uh, especially for many of our listeners who um, may be aware of some of the stories within uh, early America, may not be as well-versed in the founding of uh, the African Methodist Episcopal Church and Bishop Richard Allen. So in our conversations today, I'd love to introduce our, our listeners to uh, specifically Allen and then some of these other uh, pieces that, uh, that have really shaped part of American history. So can you tell the story of Bishop Richard Allen and why he's so significant in American history in particular and even uh, American religious history when we think about that. Sure. Um, well, Richard Allen, as you said, was born in 1760, and uh, he was born a slave. He was born in Delaware. And um, the um, the 1770s, really the 60s, 70s, and 80s, right, experienced this, this rise of the Methodists, and Baptists in a very mm -hmm. special way. And in this era, uh, Methodist preachers were very anti-slavery. And um, so, and, and as were many Baptist preachers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so he, he um, as a slave, um, 
heard the gospel preached by a Methodist preacher, but more importantly, or equally importantly, his master heard the gospel preached um, by a Methodist preacher who was preaching against slavery. Uh, Freeborn Garrison called it a sin, uh, and uh, his master um, realized that he probably shouldn't hold slaves, and in uh, in the mindset of, of that generation uh, and, and that age, um, and the, and the legalities, the property rights issues, um, there was this mentality. It wasn't so much that I um, unjustly hold you, but like you are property, and if I let right. you go, I'm taking a loss. And so um, his master allowed him to um, work extra jobs and to save up money, and they, they, they agreed on a contract, and he was able to buy his freedom as early as the age of 20. Wow. Um, and um and uh, so, yeah, so by 1780, he was a free, a free black man. And of course, this is just as the revolution is, is really kicking into high gear and all the colonies are tumultuous. And he moves to Philadelphia, which in, in the 1780s, Philadelphia was uh, pretty much so the center of, of black life and certainly a free black life, I would right. say, in America. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he moves to Philly. So as a young man to gain his emancipation at, at really at such a young age, how rare was that when we look at, you know, just the, the stories of uh, black individuals during this time period? How rare was that to be so young and have purchased your, your freedom? Mm, that's a great question. So at that age, that would be rare um, because uh, quite honestly, though, I mean, the 1780s and, and, and 70s and 80s is, is sort of the first um, in, a, in the United States, in the colonies, this was sort of the first, if you will, sort of wave of emancipations. Right. They lasted to about 1800. Uh, so for, for, for the two reasons, one being um, the, the rise of Methodism and, and, and the early Baptists, as well as um, just sort of the ideology of liberty, right, surrounding mm-hmm. the revolution and all this talk about freedom, freedom and liberty, and we're anti-slavery, we're not going to be slaves of England and so on and so forth, or slaves of the king. And so between the, the political ideology, between the rise of, of, of Methodism and, and, and Baptists, uh, there there was a move for people to free their slaves or grant their slaves the opportunity to to buy their freedom. Um, and, and most slave owners, though, you know, would look at sort of these early years of a of a slave's life. Uh, he actually he so he was born to one owner and he was sold as a child. Right. I don't know what age exactly, but he was sold. And I mean, so in some ways, to to buy your freedom that early. I mean, well, I'm just going to be. I mean, I think you know the owner made out good, actually, probably right, because he, because his most productive years for the owner would have been, you know, roughly 16 to to 36, 46. Mm-hmm. That that would have been his most productive years, and so, um, you know, whatever his owner paid for him in getting paid back, um, you know, he 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 certainly was not able to, shall we say, his owner didn't, you know, didn't. Um, Get get the full investment, as we say, in his in his slave. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a crass way to talk about humans, but exactly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so I'm sure the owner made out fine. I mean, he he covered his losses. So in allowing him to buy his freedom, I guess my point is, I don't know how much financial sacrifice he made, mm. but it was on the principle of the thing that I shouldn't own another human being. Um, and um, so, um, but yeah, no, I think it would be pretty rare for a slave to buy their freedom as early as age 20. Yeah, that would be, not be common. So as uh, Alan is freed and he's in this uh, dynamic environment in Philadelphia, 
How mm-hmm. soon before he begins to take his uh, his Christianity seriously and understand that uh, there is mm. a calling to preach and and to lead people? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, if he was anything, he was serious about his faith. Mm. Um, and uh, along the same lines, he was serious about his Methodist faith. Um, <laughs> he really believed in Methodism through and through, in every sense of the term. And you know, he he wrote that you know I I I, I came to Christ under Methodism, and that's who I am. Like I'm a right. Methodist. And uh, I think he says in in one place, you know, it's best suited for the African American or for the black <laughs> man, you know, the colored person, uh, the the language of the day. But he, um, yeah, so he was very serious about his faith. He was preaching. Um, I mean, I, I believe he was probably preaching, I think, even on the plantations, even before he got his freedom. Uh, he was preaching that early as a teenager, uh, and certainly wow. when he moved to Philadelphia, he, um, in uh, 1780, well, let me back up, in 1784, right, uh, he was at the uh, organizing convention, the so-called Christmas conference, mm-hmm. uh, the organizing convention of the Methodist Church in America, uh, as they uh, separated from um uh, John Wesley and the Church of England with with the Revolution and everything. So um, he was one of maybe just one or two blacks there. Uh, he was licensed to preach there. And uh, so he, he was preaching in the 1780s. Um, and he while he was a member of the uh, Methodist uh, Church, or as they call it then, the Methodist Episcopal Church, St. George's, um, yeah. uh, he was there in 1786. And uh, so he he was preaching there, even at that church. They were having separate meetings for 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 black parishioners, um, uh, and so he was he was exhorting, I guess, more properly speaking, uh, there at that time. Uh, and uh, yeah, so he was preaching from his his twenties or teens. So he was a preacher early on, very serious about his faith. So as he's doing this, as he's preaching, and as he's he's leading, how well was he received um, by? Uh, two dominant groups, right? So the the slaves or even the slaveholders, how are they receiving what his ministry has become? Well, he, um, uh, I'm going to say like sort of any African-American in that time period, um, uh, to the extent that his ministry follows the lines and the expectations um, of of white slaveholders, or to the extent that it's within the bounds that they want, um, it it, uh, it it had a degree of acceptance, or maybe the, probably a more technical word would be tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, certainly, you know, it, w- once he was free in Philadelphia and in the church, I mean. There was acceptance, but of course, the key story, as I know you know, um, is is how he ends up leaving the church and right. how we get to an African Methodist Episcopal church. Right. Obviously, the tolerance sort of ran out at some point. <laughs> uh, uh, sadly, uh, sadly, so right. So the the story. I don't know if this is an appropriate time to uh, to to share the story. It's it's yeah. it's, it's uh, in so many so many sources uh, he's quoted. Uh, but that he and, and several other men were kneeling at the prayer hour, and uh, you know the ushers came in the middle of the prayer, asking them to get up and move to the segregated back of the church or the galley, gallery. Uh, or and uh, so of course he refused to. He said, "When the prayer is over, we will get up and uh, we will leave and never bother you again." And he he wrote, "You know, we all went out of the church in a body, and they were no longer plagued by us." Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, 
that uh, they then begin meeting um, uh, on their own uh, in churches. Um, and of course, that was tied in with the Free African Society, right. which he had created uh, earlier in 1787. So they were not only meeting in St. George's Methodist Episcopal, but they were holding some services on their own under the auspices of the Free African Society, a mutual aid society. Um, not the first one founded by blacks, but maybe the second or third in the colonies. Mm-hmm. And um, and of course, then uh, by 1794, they had that that unfortunate experience uh, at St. George's, and then started meeting separately. Yeah. So as we think through this this tense reality that many African Americans, though they were freed, though they were um, uh, uh, though they were brothers or sisters in Christ. Uh, being rejected out of so many of the white congregations or white denominations. This led to such a variety of responses. And in Allen's case, it eventually led to the founding of a new denomination. Uh, Can you talk about that, uh, the founding really of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, why that was so significant even for that time? Sure. Well, Again, he was a Methodist um, and proud of it, and some of the individuals who, le- who left with him, of course, his friend um, uh, Absalom Jones, right, he uh, becomes an Episcopal uh, because – and so I don't know how many – the origins of Methodism are sort of interesting, sort of hard right. to understand, I think, for people in the 21st century. <laughs> so right, all Methodists. All Methodists were Episcopalians originally, if you will, right? All Methodists were. John Wesley was an ordained Anglican, right? He was, or he was, he was an Anglican. So, so, um, so they were called Methodist Episcopal. But when when he separates, um, or so, okay, so in 1784 we have the establishment of the Methodist Church in the the colonies at the time, or the United mm-hmm. States as a separate denomination. So when he starts holding uh, separate meetings, he's doing it as an all-black congregation under the auspices of the Methodist uh, Church. Um, and uh, others, like I said, left, and they formed a congregation under the auspices of the Episcopalian uh, uh, Church. Uh, but um, they, so their property was owned by the Methodist Church and, and by the whites, obviously, in the Methodist right. Church. So they, they continued to meet, and um, it, by around, um, so what, by, eight, by the 1810s, uh, he had over a thousand people uh, right. in his congregation. Uh, but there were other, so blacks were doing this in Baltimore, parts of Delaware, New Jersey, right? So in many communities, uh, black Methodists had left their, their white-run Methodist congregations and had started separate black congregations. And so they started talking by the 1810s, and uh, they came together and incorporated as the African Methodist Episcopal Church um, in 1816, I believe. And, um, uh, and this was all occurring sort of parallel with uh, legal disputes with the denomination. Right. And so that finally in 1816, I believe it was a Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision that granted them the right to that property. And um, what's fascinating is then that property becomes the property for uh, what is now called Mother Bethel Church in Philadelphia, and yep. that is the longest continuously black-owned piece of real estate in the United States. Um, where um, Mother Bethel Church stands today. So, so all of this um, is, 1816. Yeah, so yeah. all of this is kind of moving, and it's moving quickly as they're navigating these, these, uh, these waters of culture, of 
trying to stay faithful yeah. to the the scriptures and to what they understand yeah. the word of God to say, while at the same time evangelizing, at the same time uh, reaching yeah. people for Christ. And I, famously, I, I, Alan and, and I believe it's his second wife were were both very active in the yeah. Underground Railroad and and, and trying to get yeah. people to freedom, and, and then even yeah. it, it, trying to intersect into areas where freedom wasn't proclaimed to be able to uh, help people experience uh, yeah. freedom, not only in Christ, but also uh, as people. Right. No, that's very true. And, you know, one of the things that, that's fascinating in that regard, uh, um, you know, John Wesley had written the Doctrine and Discipline of, of Methodists and uh, the Methodist Church. And so um, when—so the, the, the sad thing is, right, at the point of their departure and at the point of this creation of this new denomination, this is the first time uh, I believe in church history, um, um, right, the first time in church history that a split is not directly predicated on a doctrinal difference. It's predicated on a racial and a, and a, and a, and a, and a discriminatory basis. So we have a brand new denomination. But so when they organize, they accept the, uh, in 1816, the Doctrine and Discipline of the Methodist Church, written by Wesley, um, and they just pull out that one little section about slavery <laughs> that had been added by the American Church, right, by the American Church that had been added. So they go back to the original statement of Wesley, like you said, to maintain a sound doctrine. So, you know. You know. I, I find it interesting, too, that uh, if, if I, again, if I remember correctly, that it's, it's Asbury that actually ordains him. Uh, formally, Correct. is it not? Yep. So he's even tied with yep. the the key leadership that's setting up and uh, and uh, this this amazing blossoming Methodist uh, church in, in America. Uh, I, I talk to my students all the time about uh, you know if you were uh, anywhere on the frontier where America was expanding, it it was like a, mm-hmm. a race between Baptists and Methodists right. uh, in each of the right. cities. They're competing with each other yeah. all the way across and and trying right. to uh, right. win souls. Um, as they go, yeah. but uh, this expansion that's that's happening, it's it's now uh, happening within the the African American community as well as yeah. Allen and and others are are joining together to try to reach into this um, uh, I- into ministering to these groups of people who the Lord loves, who Christ died for, and yet they're being excluded right. from churches. Um, Amen. Yeah, no, it's so true. And and again, we, we haven't mentioned the phrase, but this is also the Second Great Awakening, right? That's right. So um, all the things that come along with that, the, the revivalism, the conversions, like you said, the church plantings, um, the uh, even the, the some of the theology, right? Um, the, the mm-hmm. theology, the soteriology in particular, right? I mean, all of this is, it, it, it translates into the AME world. It translates into the African American church world, among Baptists, among the AME, um, and then, of course, some of your readers, uh, some of your listeners, I, I'll just mention this, too, for clarity's sake, um, in case a listener is wondering, there is also something called the AME Zion Church, right, um, right which is based, uh, starts in Manhattan at basically the same time period that the AME is founded uh, in Philly, sort of Philly and Baltimore, Delaware area. Uh, and the AME Zion, again, doctrinally is, is indistinguishable from the AME Church, 
uh, just sort of a different set of people running it. And, and again, it's just like you're saying, Baptists and Methodists were competing out west, and we have all our First Baptist churches and First Meth. You know, um, they were all competing for settlement. You know, it's the same between the AME and the AME Zion. So they right. were competing for churches uh, among the African American populations all throughout the Northeast, and then of course Charleston, um, uh, New Orleans, and places like that in the South. So yeah. No, very, very vibrant time for churches in America, Second Great Awakening. If if some of our listeners wanted to read more about Alan, where would they find some good sources about him? Well, you know, one of the neat things about him that even how you started off, right, you, you quoted um, from his autobiography. So this was published posthumously in 1833, and it's available free uh, online. Um, which is is wonderful. You can read it on docsouth.unc.edu, his autobiography, and it also talks about, um, given the fact we're in the middle of a a pandemic now, um, it uh, (laughs) might be appropriate to mention the yellow fever uh, pandemic. Uh, And so um, uh, his uh, Free African Society uh, was involved in in really helping remove dead bodies from Philadelphia for several months Mm -hmm. at the direct request of the the city government. Um, There are... um, there are uh, a couple of other um, – there, there are several um, books that – one of the books that helps put him in, in the broader context of uh, the history of African-American uh, Christianity in general is a book called Through the Storm and Through the Night. Um, it's a history of African-American Christianity mm-hmm. uh, by Paul Harvey, and uh, that certainly contextualizes him along with Baptists and along with uh, other kinds of Christians and, and you know, the, the forms of Christianity as it develops, um, certainly. Some of this is so accessible for, for our listeners, and it, even Google Books has now its copies of, uh, of all of these uh, works yes. of his that you can, just, you can just grab, and they're short, and you can read in his own words what, what, what he is trying to accomplish and, and uh, what right. it, you're, you're just able to put yourself uh, a little bit into his uh, into his framework, which is, again, one of the best ways to see how uh, individuals in the past are wrestling with their own challenges of their own day and time, uh, whether it's the yellow fever, whether it's slavery, whether it's um, overwhelming circumstances, uh, death of a spouse, uh, in, in his case, his first wife passing. Um, all, all of these, right. these, right. these pieces are reflected on it, and you're hearing a person who is a faithful, godly minister uh, dealing with this in a way that's reflective of uh, his relationship with Christ. Oh, definitely. One of the—actually, I also want to mention this a book called Freedom's Prophet, Bishop Richard Allen, the AME Church and the Black Founding Fathers mm-hmm. uh, by Richard Newman. That is, that's, uh, I believe, the most recent um, biography of him, and it really just, again, puts him in context uh, in, in so many ways. The African-American historian back in 1935 called Charles H. Wesley, he mm-hmm. wrote uh, a book on him, right, Richard Allen, Apostle of Freedom. Um, so there, there is definitely um, that book on him, and there is also a book by Carol George called Segregated Sabbath, Richard Allen and the Emergence of Independent Black Churches. Um, so mm. there, there are several uh, good pieces out there. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. Listeners, I would encourage you to grab one of these volumes and encourage your heart as you look at uh, this fantastic leader yeah, who— definitely. Um, 
really sought to make a difference in his day and time and remain faithful to the calling of Christ despite overwhelming uh, circumstances. Uh, I'm going to actually close our time here uh, quoting from uh, the life and experience and gospel labors of uh, the right Reverend Richard Allen, uh, as told by himself. This is autobiography. The kind of towards the conclusion of that, uh, he has uh, a section where he talks about uh, kind of his own creed, faith, hope, and love taken from scriptures. And so he, he mm-hmm. talks about the nature of faith, uh, what he believes. He talks about the nature of hope, what gives him hope, and then uh, ultimately love and, and what's there. And he closes with this. Uh, O crucified Jesus, in whom I live and without whom I die, mortify in me all sensual desires, inflame my heart with thy holy love, that I may no longer esteem the vanities of this world, but place my affections entirely on thee. Let my last breath, when my soul shall leave my body, breathe forth love to thee, my God. I entered into life without acknowledging thee. Let me therefore finish it in loving thee. Oh, let the last act of my life be love, remembering that God is love. Amen. Oh, that's beautiful. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This Week in Church History. I look forward to possibly having you back in the future where we could talk about some of your research relating to prohibition, fascinating part of American history. And I'd love to uh, ask some questions relating to that. Sure. Well, thank you so much. for. I've enjoyed this today. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Listeners, thank you again for joining us for uh, This Week in Church History, and we'll see you next week on This Week in Church History. 